Welcome to Hollywood Ungagged, the Mark Ashton of Political Podcasts. Season 5, Episode 10, I am your host, David McClement, broadcasting from the Blantyre Free State, and joining me this evening, or this morning as we're actually recording, Hollywood OG, heir to Falkirk's largest pasta-based business empire, and soon-to-be pre- professor of pepperoni at a leading Scottish university, it's Brian Finlay. Hello, hello. And introducing the third member of the this morning's triumvirate, guess who's back, back again, Shady's back, tell a friend, it's Deborah Torrance. Deborah, you're back. Yay! Yay! I'm sorry, I got lost on my way in the first uh, episode of the season. <laughs> nice to finally catch up, please. Nice to be back. Nice to have you back, despite my cruel jokes. And there will be more. <laughs> so how have you been? It's it's always a different vibe recording in the morning, with the sun is shining and my voice sounds different in the morning when I've just crawled out of bed and done the school run with my hair all over the place. I thought that was a styling choice, that quiff. Uh, no, it's I've put my headphones on too fast, quiff. <laughs> headphones on too fast. My bald head doesn't react when I put my headphones on too fast. But I am good. And I do much prefer recording in the morning because I feel more alert at this time of the morning. Yeah, Brian's so dedicated to podcasting, he keeps his head shaved short so that he can slide the headphones on and off with minimum resistance. Actually, since the age of 21, since I started balding, so, you know, there we go. Years in preparation for becoming Years. a podcasting star. Years. I think a bald man's very handsome, as is a hairy man with a hairy face and a big quiff. He's a handsome po- I'm just glad to see your faces. I'm just so glad you're <laughs> back too. This is, you know, making me feel great. Hey, bo- hey, honest, Deborah, handsome men will know really your um, <laughs> expertise. Don't judge. Don't judge. <laughs> Right, man, bro. You've already got the whole month. <laughs> Get agenda. For the listeners, Deborah just thrusting her chest towards the camera there. That's quite disturbing. <laughs> because she has a pride t-shirt on, I should add. Anyway, how have you been, Deborah? Obviously, you've not been on Hollywood for quite a while since you had a mishap. Right, well, wasn't it? Well, I mean, I, I did have a mishap and fell and dislocated my shoulder and hip, but that's just standard. Uh, I just wanted uh, listeners to be aware of yeah, a thing I wasn't aware of. Do you know what a transient ischemic attack is? No, neither no. did I. And then is it a heart had... thing? No, it's a no. brain thing. It's uh, <laughs> like a bleed on the brain. It's the same as a stroke, it's called a mini stroke, and that's what we Jeannie had, and that's how I've not been podcasting because I've been looking after Jeannie, who is a very I, I just realized <laughs> what that it stands for TIA. I have heard of TIAs. Yeah, yeah, it's a TIA. So it just it's the same as a stroke, but then five minutes after they have it, they're totally fine and arguing with you that you don't need to phone an ambulance. Don't listen to them, phone an ambulance <laughs> because uh, it's pretty serious and it means uh, you probably have to change your diet stop smoking 40 cigarettes a day uh, eat less butter and sugar and uh, lay off the double cream so me and Jeannie has been up in her exercises uh, and she calls me a a torturer she says I'm wicked well she's no wrong but (laughs) I'm glad she's feeling feeling better and hope this is the she's on the road to full recovery Oh, she's fully belligerent. It's great. She's all right. <laughs> Feisty as ever. We love you, Jeannie. Get well soon, Jeannie. Oh, she'll love that. 
and what you've been up to, Brian? Since us, well, I two mean, weeks. I was new on last week, so you were new on last week. What I've been doing, basically, what I've been doing, for what feels like my whole life, uh, working, uh, researching, gardening, and the odd bits and pieces, some nice bits and pieces. And I've got a holiday coming up in two weeks' time, so all is well. Don't you always have a holiday coming up in two weeks' time? <laughs> Not in two weeks' time, but there is. As soon as, as soon as one is over, the countdown is reset on the phone for the next one because that is that is important. Back to Spain. It is indeed. Yeah. Back to Spain. Well, it's been a busy weekend for me. Between I was working last week, and then it was one of the kids' birthdays this weekend, so it was a roller disco on Friday, which was you know just my kind of thing. I'd pay to see that. And then family over on Sunday. To be honest, I stayed off the. What do you call it? The roller rink. The rink. A non-ice rink. A dry rink. <laughs> so I stayed off that. So I just kind of sat there guarding the pizzas while everybody else roller skated. I just, I get. just have this image of you if you'd gone on the rink, like you know, like Jessica Simpson's public affair video where she's just sort of. Oh yeah, I, I totally know that. I'm, I'm so <laughs> familiar with that video. <laughs> Some people just... will get the reference. It's Pride Month. I'd I'd pay money to see David on rollerblades on an ice rink. That'd be fun. That would be fun. <laughs> I did that a few years ago, and I will not be doing it again. I mean, I went on ice rinks when I was like a kid, and I was never great at ice skating, but I could do it. So I didn't think it was a big deal when, like, twenty years later, I decided to get another go. Apparently, that's a skill that doesn't age with you. <laughs> I just, I, I was literally like, I was almost falling with every step. Like, I was all over the place. I had, I think, three or four major falls, and it was also sobering for the point. Nobody laughed at me. Lots of teenagers would skate over and help me up and call me sir, which just made me want to cry. <laughs> your phone came out your pocket there as well, sir. Oh, here's your wallet, because like, everything in my pockets had skated across the ice everywhere. Well, my, Youth of today with their manners. I can't remember what age me, uh, Megan was at the time, but she was thought she was amazing because she wasn't falling, but she was hanging on to like a big penguin thing. So, you know, I think even I could have managed if I had a giant penguin to hold on to. But uh, she get a bit, she got a bit uh, fully herself that she was a master skater and let go of the penguin, and then she fell. So a bit of poetic justice for all the laughing that she did to me. <laughs> Casual competition where you're weighing the ice. Skate. I know. <laughs> Well, there wasn't really a competition. Just me trying to salvage some kind of self-respect and dignity. Yep. Then I watched the football on Saturday, which was good. And Sunday we had family over for another another birthday celebration. Nice. It's Pride Month. Some... And you're talking about football. <laughs> Poor Brian. <laughs> I just keep seeing that there's loads of football games all the time. I kind of keep up. So. Well, that, that's it for now. Oh, is it? Pretty much, yeah. That's the season's finished. So you probably Pride just... Month started on the straight folk just step down. It's name of football for years. It's it's the the <laughs> annual handover from yeah. from, from the heteros <laughs> to the homos. There we go. I love it. There was a negotiation though, because the Scottish Cup was actually on the second of June. It's normally in May, so I don't know if they had to clear that way with the Eurovision committee or something. <laughs> Possible. I think you've uh, touched on a conspiracy there, Brian. Like that's why Glasgow has Pride June and July, uh-huh. all the way into August, because it's Glasgow, isn't it? It's good and to have loads of that. The footballs, no one. 
do you think there should be like some kind of, you know, try to work out the the kind of disparity between the the UK? I don't know if it's the UK or just all the rest of the world in America that has like Black History Month and Pride Month like the opposite way around. These are looking as if you've got no idea what I'm talking about. June's Pride uh, is June's Black History. Pride. I it's Black History Month in America, mm-hmm. and I think Pride Month is whatever Black History Month is here. Is it October? Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah there is. So a... I thought this. I thought this was a common known fact, but you're just staring at me like I've just. Nah, sorry, we're... like I've started speaking in a different language. <laughs> yeah. I know you're that no the, gay the... in the USA. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but no, I think that there is constant like confusion about what different months and weeks and days and things like that with with the US, which just shows you really that some people are just too aligned to the American way of thinking, and maybe we should. Uh, just celebrate everybody. Celebrate all minorities. Let's go for it. Yeah, because I think they get Mother's Day and stuff like that in different days to they do. the rest of the world. Although, again, I'm saying the rest of the world. I just don't know if it's the UK. Like, I don't know. Maybe France is a totally different Mother's Day to everybody else. You just I think staring probably. At me. Because it's very early to be testing their knowledge on worldwide <laughs> dates of recognition for different... I mean, that's... That's a hard come first episode come back in yeah. some you, months. You, I don't know. You, you I'm pretty sure all... Mother's Day is different in every culture across the world. I mean, you <laughs> could have just went, hmm, that's interesting. I'm not so sure. No, just stare at me. <laughs> Staring is not very good for podcasting. Yeah, it's important that people are Googling things like Mother's Day to make sure that you put UK in it because, you know, that could really catch you out if you're... Uh, planning your events or cards or flowers and such like. And how does it work? Do you celebrate whatever country you're in? Or like if your mother's German, <laughs> do you have to celebrate German Mother's Day even though you now live here? This is getting really complex. I mean, I for me know, personally, just... I would I would just go with whatever country you were in, but, you know. That's just because you, you travel a bit so much, you want to be able to celebrate multiple holidays. Yes, that's, that's exactly it. I'd argue every day should be Mother's Day and you should always give her flowers and treat her well. Oh, that, who's staring now? Who's staring now? Because Deborah's like, I'm just going to make sure Jeannie listens to this episode. Yeah. And like, oh, that's got, so nice. I'm going to clip that and send it to Jeannie so Jeannie can be like, hey, well, it's, it's a Tuesday. Where's my flowers? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Don't think you realise the expense flowers every day is going to cost you, Deborah. You've really made a mistake here. Even, right, even, if, you, even if you just go for girl. like, so you're not even buying her flowers, you just rip them up weeds. There you go. Nah, I'll just pick her them. I, I didn't say you had to buy her, just get her. You're an absolute Can we start the podcast? <laughs> fine, fine. Let's get on gagged. Okay, let's talk about the first item on the agenda. The UK is the only member of the United Nations to be investigated for the horrendous way the government has treated disabled people. But the Daily Telegraph still thinks the UK is being too generous and has created a handy calculator that helps readers to work out just how much the welfare state is costing them personally. 
Concerned disability campaigners have pointed out the similarity between this and early Nazi propaganda that stirred up hatred and resentment for disabled people based on the idea that their continued existence is a financial burden in the state. Deborah, I'm sure you have a strong, some strong feelings about this. No, um, I think they're right. We're all scroungers. I mean, when I saw this story, I wasn't even surprised. Like, it's just the continued assault on the most vulnerable in our society. That's that's what's going on. And it's so completely devastating to be a disabled person under the scrutiny of the DWP, under the scrutiny of society who want to argue with you, you know, to prove your disability all the time. And the same time you're fighting for your basic societal caring needs, your access to things, wheelchairs, medicine, except like just stuff so that you can live your life. And this this attitude of, oh, uh, how much money are you paying to support me? I'm sorry if I'm costing you money. Everybody at some point in their life could become disabled. They could it, you could break a leg and be incapacitated and somebody come in and help you get into the bath. Like that, that is still a disability. It, it could be a temporary thing, it could be a long-term thing, it could be a chronic thing where you never ever get better. That the the way people view disability in this country just now, it's it's regressive and depressing. And thanks for uh, making this the first topic to talk about so that um, I get emotional and get pure raging and a fucking Tory graph. Because let's be honest, that's what it is. It's to further the Tory agenda. Tory agenda of, let's not forget, this all started with uh, DLA reform and when they went to PIP and they took away the they changed the international standard to the mobility element, which used to be you couldn't walk 50 metres without aid or without pain. That meant you were disabled. You could claim for different elements. But they changed it when they reformed it to a personal independence payment, and that went down to 20 metres. And it didn't have any mention of uh, with pain. And they, wanted, they said with aids. So it was completely different and it meant a lot of people who maybe had heart problems couldn't do the 50 meters or they might be able to do the 50 meters but they can't come back or like the the way they attacked and disseminated the social security system of this country that was so hard fought for by working people like unemployment the the way they they put sanctions on people so that they end up in debt to the DWP so even when they start work they're still paying money back to the brew it's disgraceful the two child cap limit uh, the horrific and horrendous rape clause like that they introduced for tax credits the benefit cap for a household the uh, there's so many things that lead up to this and the uh, fact that they said this was akin to early Nazi propaganda. They're no fucking wrong, because go and read a history book. That's uh, what I'm going to say there, and no make any other sort of comparisons, because Nazis are also fucking horrendous. So, right. I'm done. Yeah, no, I completely agree with what Deborah's saying. When I, when I first seen the story, I, was, I wasn't surprised either, uh, that it was particularly from The Telegraph. Um, the, the first place that I seen this was being shared by is it Francis Ryan, who's the uh, academic and um, 
and writer and disability activist. And the tone of, of her tweet just looked really defeated. And it's it's just it's just constantly exhausting, I think, particularly for disabled people who is constantly attacked. You know, the, the sort of latest wave of discrimination towards disabled people within the welfare state really came into sharp focus when universal credit was being rolled out and there was really really good critical coverage I think of of all the the different layers and issues uh, with universal credit and essentially universal credit being set up to exclude as many people as possible to reduce the um, burden and I'm saying that in inverted commas on the taxpayer Um, and that was the narrative that was set. I've known a lot of people who in recent years have had to go through PIP um, to to receive uh, the, the the personal independence payment, uh, people we with with temporary disabilities, people who have developed the, the, the they need support needs, and basically you are g'd up to 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 almost lay it on thick to make sure that you get this this benefit that that you are entitled to, and and people who are vulnerable should not be put in those positions to gain access to something that they need to live with with dignity right that, that, that's really the basic and, and fundamental aspects of it and that's what has been created by the conservatives and and there was a lot of shout and really really good coverage of that but that sort of fell away uh, it from from the kind of mainstream coverage of, of media over the last say five six years and this is the, the it's almost like here's the return here it's back this is how much it's costing you and it's individualizing the costs uh, onto individuals but i would love them to do a similar calculator for tax evasion you know how you know the the, the different benefits that we give to business to to set up uh, all the tax breaks that are given to 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 millionaires and billionaires let's see how much that's costing individual people because if you want to play the game of individualizing the cost of a tax system then you know do it right across the board if, if that's the really horrible thing that you want to do but actually i think the important thing for us um who are progressives is to constantly hammer home the, the the message of it being a collective society and then how do we create the collective society to make sure that everybody or as many people as possible can live in dignity and have ac- access to the basic things that they need but the Tory graph know exactly what they're doing and this is just a next the next gear uh, ready for the general election that, that we know is coming but you know within the next 12 to 18 months and I am not looking forward to that general election campaign at all because we've seen the the foundation's been set and and this is this is the next one and it's 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 really really concerning yeah i mean i can't even think of any legitimate reason for doing something like this except for you want to rile people up to be angry and be hateful towards you know people in general that are in receipt of benefits but particularly disabled people I did not see any kind of calculator about how much the coronation was costing us, how much the monarchy cost us. And that's because, you know, the Telegraph would support all that. You know, a left-wing paper might come up with a calculator about the monarchy. Uh, That's because we want rid of the monarchy. And that's the same reason they're doing this, because they just want rid of the welfare state. I think they want rid of disabled people in general, by the sounds of it. It's just, you know, at some point we just crossed a line where... It used to be you'd go, all right, once you start comparing everything to Nazism, it becomes a bit silly. It's hard not to compare things to Nazism now. It feels as if they're deliberately uh, going and looking at things for lessons and mimicking some of these things. It's, it's disgusting. It's There's no no other word for it. You know, I was, I was looking through 
uh, some of the article, and it was, you know, other language about it as well. You know, it said 3.7 million people have been granted indefinite exemptions from finding a job. And it's like, well, you mean people too disabled to work? You know, like, as if, as if like, folk have just decided, nah, on you go, you don't need to bother, you don't need to work, we'll just, you know, we'll just give you money and you can live it up at our expense. It's like, anybody with any passing interaction with DWP knows how extremely difficult uh, or extremely disabled th those 3.7 million people must be to get that uh, indefinite exemption. I mean, we've all heard stories about people with, you know, terminal cancer, we literally, you know, weeks to live, people with multiple amputations, all getting letters telling them they're fit for work and denying their claims, you know, so, I mean, God knows what some of the, the people that, that got it would be, you know, there's DWP advisors out there that, you know, would look at somebody that's ahead in a box and tell them that they need to get out and get a job, you know, it's dis disgraceful. I mean, they were sanctioning people in comas. The actual system that has been set up for people for supposed support and it's, it's so difficult to negotiate, yet here they are with a handy wee calculator, how much uh, your hard-earned, your hard-working people, you know, earning all that money, how much your tax is going to support these lazy disabled people. <laughs> it's just, as you're right, it's, it's a mantra, it's a political mantra and... Uh, it's become all too familiar. And it's not a surprise that they would choose like in a time now where a cost of living crisis where loads of people are struggling. It's like, if you're angry, you're feeling angry about this, you're feeling angry because you can't get a pay rise, you're feeling angry because of the cost of every, or the things you buy to feed your family is going up. Well, here you go. Here's a nice wee target to hate. You know, if there's a disabled person that lives down the road for your street, go and blame them. Don't look at the government. Don't look at people that actually, you know, run the country. Go and start shouting at the, the person in a wheelchair that lives down the road because they've got a mobility car or whatever. It's it's so... Uh, I, I don't know how to describe it without just launching into a sweary rant. They hired 1,000 fraud new fraud officers to investigate fraud, which is very negligent. Uh, I think it's... I can't remember exactly. I want to say under 3%, or it might even be like 0.3%. Like, it's so ridiculously minuscule. I don't know why they've hired a thousand new officers when really they should be looking at underpayment of uh, benefits because there's billions of pounds of underclaimed benefits. Surely that would be a better way to support disabled and people who need the support. It's just, um, this whole system is broken and it needs burnt to the ground. Thank goodness for the Scottish security with the new welfare fund, but it's uh, not been rolled out fast enough in that opinion. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that the this is this is like erosion of the system that was built after the Second World War. Constant, you know, erosion and it and it's so subtle and it starts with things like propaganda, like calculating and, and individualizing everything. But I would say across society, particularly those in the center ground, perhaps even those on the right and, and some people on the left too, can can individualize policy decisions and costs to the taxpayer right? and I always use that particularly because I think it's the stupidest thing ever to to constantly keep framing it through through you know about our contributions we pay into a tax system and we elect a government to collect that money and, and do what they think or what they're elected to do right and it, and it all boils down to every single policy area because if you've got somebody say you know I support much higher tax 
for 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 people who earn more capital all these different things and i know we'll come to that another topic about later but it's almost like well you can't comment on that because you're not in that tax bracket or you know you can't comment on this and you know you don't pay for tax or you know when you're individual is lies in it down to i put in i should get out but that's not how taxation works and this is where we can make our society a lot more inclusive. You know, we could talk about things like uh, universal basic income, universal basic services, all these different things. And it's like, well, the only the way that these work, because everyone just goes, bah, that costs so much money. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, you'll pay more so that everyone else will have access to, to you know, the basic essential services that they need. And that's the progressive way for society to work. But by the telegraph, they know exactly what they're doing. Loads of people are struggling. So they can do this calculator and say, oh my goodness, I'm paying, you know, X amount per year out of my tax contributions and it's going to the welfare state and I'm already struggling. Well, that's not the problem. The problem is that you're not being paid enough. You're probably on a zero or contract or you're enrolling, you know, contracts where you, you've got no financial security and you are not able to afford your bills because the interventions that the UK government could be putting in place, they're not putting in place and basically they don't care. That's why you don't have enough money and it's got nothing to do with, um, you know, a or, or pro, pro, providing the, the basic necessities for, for disabled people to, to have some uh, dignity in their life. It's also worth reminding everybody that the vast majority of the welfare state goes towards paying for pensions. It goes towards paying in yep. benefits. The actual amount of that budget that goes towards people that are out of work for whatever reason, whether through disability, through unemployment, is a very small percentage of the overall budget. But there's not as much political capital in attacking old people, one, because a lot of the Tories voters are uh, getting pensions themselves, and two, you know, people relate to, well, my, that's my granny, why should you don't want to take her pension, whereas a lot of people maybe don't know disabled people, so it's a lot easier to just conceptualise them as some kind of abstract concept rather than a, a, a real per, uh, real people with families and lives they're trying to live. Mm. And that, that comes into the individualization again, because pensions you can't attack because everyone's like, oh, they worked all their life. They paid into the system. Well, OK, that's that's by the by, you know, and it's about well, we want to protect people who are older who are at pension age. Yes, we do. But we also want to look after all of these other people and, you know, looking at as well in work benefits. That's the biggest issue to do with the welfare state in my opinion is because why are employers not paying enough providing safe secure employment so that the, the state does not have to top up people's wages because employers are pocketing much more profit than they should failure to eradicate poverty is ca causing scotland to lose out and up to 2.4 billion a year according to a new report by anti-poverty charities some 2.3 billion of health world's budgets is directed at responding to the impacts of poverty, while around another quarter of a billion pounds is spent each year on dealing with the consequences of poverty in schools. The report found, but warns, that both of these are likely to be significant underestimates. Brian, you you found this story, so why don't you kick us off? Yeah, no, I found this story when I was um, <clears throat> doom scrolling on Twitter, and uh, I was like, oh there's a surprise keeping a society in poverty costs loads of money uh, and this is this is entirely by design obviously they're talking a lot about like the health implications the social security implications uh school education all, all these different things and it, and it is obviously all true the the um the group is at the ipcc um who created this report was being relatively positive to some of the interventions the scottish government has tried to do so of course you've got the the, the child 
payment, which had been increased and then increased again. But then that's just another symptom of this problem. So, you know, governments are having to create these much needed policies to target people to to give them additional support because so many people are in poverty, right? So the kind of key takeaways that I took from it is if you create a inclusive and a progressive society, then poverty does not exist or if there is people in poverty it's, it's it's much much lower groups of people who can get much needed quick targeted support right whereas if we are constantly running as well you know we with the uk government always says oh you can't run on a deficit you can't run on a deficit you know is the, the, the sort of fiscal positioning well we as a society are constantly running at a deficit because people do not have enough money to you know <clears throat> feed themselves heat their homes you know have access to the basic things that they need in life so therefore the welfare state steps in a lot more like i just touched on before people are on poverty wages zero contracts all that kind of stuff so they are receiving in work benefits which is just wild when you think about how much profit some organizations are making so for me it's really just going back to the taxation system that we've got you know piloting some of these radical approaches to to providing things for people whether that be ubi universal basic services or or whatever model you want to adopt not only would that make people much happier which i think is one of the most important things that we need to be looking at rather than just looking at gdp and 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 all the figures and the spreadsheets kind of stuff of it it's just about providing a society where people have got access to the basic things that they need they're happier um and and as as a and as a country there's not this constant plug in the gaps extremely in scotland that you know the the report acknowledges devolution acknowledges reserve powers versus versus what the powers that they have in, in the devolved parliaments but then of course that in itself is costing scotland a lot more money because you've got the mitigation of the bedroom tax and, and the various other policies that they're doing so basically what we're doing is we're paying for terrible tory economic policy and and this you know goes way way back basically since neoliberalism neoliberalism kicked in and basically, we're just wasting money when actually we could be a much more proactive, inclusive and progressive society. Deborah? As long as there are people who want to make profit, there's going to be poverty. That's And I don't like the phrase trying to eradicate poverty because, as you said, Brian, there's always going to be a small group of people who are and kept in poverty. As well as, I like the stats in the, the article about sort of generational poverty and if you grew up in poverty you were uh, likely to be in the lower 25 percent of annual salary like it, it was just uh, there was a lot of really thought-provoking things in the article when you first sent me I was like well, well, I don't I don't understand but it makes perfect sense it costs money to mitigate stupid Tory pot policy that's keeping people down it's it really is it's an idealism like poverty is a political choice we don't have to we don't have to have poverty we and the, the, we don't have to have it in the grand scale that we're seeing it now where there's so many people who are just living day to day meal to meal and they don't have electricity consistently like this is 2023 and apparently the greatest nation on earth great britain is disgusting and the remedial work that uh, the mitigating efforts that the Scottish government have to put into place is also costing money that could be spent elsewhere it's just that I think there's just wasted as you said Brian we waste so much money on things that, that, that we don't 
we shouldn't need in 2023. We shouldn't need these things. I'm glad they exist to support people, but we shouldn't have we, sh- we shouldn't have them. We also shouldn't have a system which is constantly <clears throat> increasing the need, increasing the need. You know, food banks and and people having to access. I've been talking about warm banks, you know, because the 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 energy policy of the UK government is that bad, um, and 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 to some extent as well, the Scottish government are not being as radical as what they need to be you know they're essentially taking the if we look at the policies around energy and and the the, you know the cost of living payments and things that the uk government put in it was a carbon copy so you know the the scottish government you know got the money from the uk government they put the 150 pound in everybody's council tax there was no there was no topping up there was no change of the policy you know the scottish government needs to be much much more radical and with the, the the taxation, I believe this has gone back. You know, when the the two child cap and the rate clause came in, um, it was estimated that if they had increased, I think the top two tiers of tax by one percent, they could have mitigated that as well. So, it's I'm not saying that the Scottish government should just constantly keep mitigating these policies. We need to radically change and move on from that. But in the interim period, it's the only option that's open to us, and the Scottish government should be doing it. Yeah, I mean, poverty is so destructive for a society. You know, if you look at all the different issues that and you know any any government faces if you just tackled and solved poverty you would find that so many of these other issues are either evaporate or are alleviated to the point that they're far more solvable you know if you get rid of poverty think of the, the kind of impact that would then have on uh, health outcomes and things like you know the burden on the nhs um uh, you look at a lot of issues that crop up in education if you solve poverty how that would help um, if you solve poverty, how that would impact in crime statistics. It would be like as close you can get to a silver bullet for, for these things. Silver bu- bullets don't exist. But if you solve poverty, you would suddenly find a lot of other problems would would vastly improve. But the right, especially the kind of extreme libertarian right, which has been rampant in America and is now setting in quite uh, a lot in the UK compared to a few decades ago, the, they have an ideological objection towards government solving problems, which sounds ridiculous, but their whole premise and belief structures based on government doesn't work. So even even if there was a, a valid plan to get rid of poverty, they would not want to pursue it because it would undermine their entire ideology. Their argument is government doesn't work, so we just have to privatise everything. And what a coincidence, me and my friends will make a lot of money out of doing that. But the closest we get is the right wing trying to do that and you get centrists at their best will try to say oh the boat's sinking let's keep wasting our time trying to bail it out rather than fixing the big fucking hole where the water's coming in and I don't see any mainstream political trends now that I really believe is going to go the whole hog and actually implement the radical change that society is crying out for Well I think UBI is the radical change that we need and uh, I was just talking to Brian before you came on to the, the channel David because you were late I was listening to LBC radio last night and they've launched a UBI trial down in England and it's for 30 people uh, who are on benefits just now uh, and unemployed and they're going to receive £1,600 a month for two years and the reason it's a wee bit higher than what other trials have been across the world is because they want to see a sort of fast result but I'm worried about what the measure is what what are the is it going to be happiness well-being or is it going to be what I suspect how many of them go and become employed you know 
volunteer for the, you know their productivity is going to be that's what the measure is going to be in my opinion because it's from the the UK government so I'd I do think UBI is the way to go. But what was interesting about listening to the Colin show was just people's responses were so outrageous. Like they were raging about it. <laughs> like, why do if we give everybody sixteen hundred pounds, everybody's just going to lie in their bed and watch Netflix? Who's what, nobody's going to work? And it's just that continued mantra of only the exceptionally wealthy who inherit loads of money, only they can be rich and still be productive. And how productive are they? It's just, uh, I don't, I think the solution to poverty is give poor people money. <laughs> Honestly, I do. You give poor people money, they're going to spend it, stimulate the economy. And then, so what if they don't get a job? Maybe they've got caring responsibilities. Maybe they've got childcare responsibilities. Maybe they're in education. Maybe they're retraining. So what? Just give people money. <laughs> maybe, maybe if they did that, what, uh, workplaces would be forced to be a bit more um, nicer places to be, you know, maybe it wouldn't be alright for employers to treat their staff like shit you know, like, you know, that seems like a very positive outcome that could come from something like UBI, and I did see that the announcement of that pilot, but my first reaction was, how many is that now? I mean, I just feel as if I've heard about so many pilot schemes, and the first couple of times I thought, oh that's great, so this maybe is the prelude to something, but I just feel as if it never goes anywhere. And I, I've heard about so many of these pilot schemes getting launched. I don't know if I've even heard about the results of any of them. They just seem to fade into the background. Uh, there's, if you look at a, a study in UBI, which was like a mass scale one, it's back in the late seventies. It was in Winnipeg in Canada, and it was uh, like basically binned because a right wing government came in. But there's a lot of data on that one, and it is interesting. But obviously, you know, economics have changed quite a lot since then. UBI, yeah, is is. Again, it's not the silver bullet, um, but I think it's definitely, it's almost like we could resolve a lot of issues overnight if this was to be implemented. But I think it would have to be partnered with actually having like the universal publicly owned services, because what ends up happening is that UBI would be given to everybody and then we we're just paying private companies to provide the, the the essentials that we need. So it's like, you know, energy, you know, the welfare state, education, all these different things transport as well included in that because what will happen is that you know basically people are, are then just giving money to to bus companies and 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 any other private transport companies so for ubi to work properly and the money to be contained within the system properly it needs to to be publicly owned services and and this is another thing too you know where the scottish government could really start doing some radical things because ScotRail is now in public service as a public service and it's great that we'll see the end of peak rail fares sorry for six months as a trial but we need more than that <laughs> we need a bigger plan we need it you know to, to really start mapping out and to be ready to to help prevent some of these issues of, of of poverty and to really combat it and and actually for people to see actually see it in reality how things could be so radically changed because people have accepted neoliberalism because now it's you know 40 odd years now it's just it's just norm normal now where if we started to introduce these public services free at the point of use 
because the NHS is, is separate. People see that as totally separate, which is really interesting in itself. But if you could start providing that with other services and it was on top of UBI, I think we, we would start to see some really radical changes in poverty would, would reduce and it will never, ever disappear. But like I said, if it's a small group of people who fall into poverty, it's not that that's the norm. Like people fall into poverty, yeah. then they can intervene and they, they can change it. And doing a UBI trial with, with is it 30 people? What's that going to tell us? It's I'm worried and I'm cynical that this is going to be the outcome is yeah. going to be, oh well, um, you know this happened and that happened, but people didn't go back into work, so it's a waste of money. So we're going to move on, and then that's the Tories saying, right, that chapter's closed. That's what worries me. But if you actually want to do a proper trial, it would have to be something as large as like a local authority area or or a region or or something like that, um, and and it goes to everybody. And that's the only way you're actually going to start to see um, changes in a region versus another region. You're not going to see it with 30 people. And this is another thing, like talking about what is the positive destination of a UBI trial, what going into zero contract minimum wage employment. That's not, you know, that's not a positive destination. And then, of course, there's a wider debate of what work actually is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's me just being cynical about the whole thing. But hopefully... There are some positives that come out of it, but with this government at the helm, I'm not confident. Yeah, and that's other thing as well. Like, you know, a positive thing about UBI is it would force wages up because yeah, you would need to attract people into work, and you can just rely on the fact that well, people need a job to feed themselves. But of course, that's not really you're gonna, you're only going to have that effect if it's on a mass scale. You're not going to have that. That's not going to pressurize companies if there's only thirty people that are included. Even a local authority probably wouldn't be enough to. Have that kind of, you know, macro effect. I used the word yeah. macro, hoping that I used it right there. That was good. I think that all the UBI trials that have already been done in Scandinavia, Canada, eh, I think they've done, oh, I can't remember where the other one was, I was very interested in. But the, the results have been pretty varied and I presume it's because of whatever motivations it was for. Like, if in Scandinavia everybody was all much happier, then I'm pretty sure they'd be quite, you know, that'd be a good outcome for them. But here in Britain, going back to that calling, listen to a lot of people's perceptions around work. It's just so depressing, especially as a disabled person with limited capacity to work. Like, I'm never going to be able to earn megabucks, do you know what I mean? And with myself out of needing that support from the welfare system. And there's people who, just they, they cannot work, whether it be from health conditions, mental health conditions, you know, suffering through just generational poverty and c- consistent governments attacking them and their communities that they live in, like the desecration industry that maybe their parents had, you know, they went through maybe the, the, the minor strikes or like just... There's so many different aspects of trying to tackle poverty. I just think, as Brian said, UBI could be a catalyst for a real change, but it has to be with all the the nationalisation and public ownership of the services, as Brian said. So I I like when there's trials because it means people are talking about UBI, but this trial, 30 people, what what is it going to prove? I'm glad the people are getting that, though. Mm -hmm. That's good for them. (laughs) Yeah. And I think also that as we look to the future, I mean, you know, employment is constantly changing, right? So, you know, people are quite rightly talking about AI. And I think that 
obviously there is there's a lot of really like scary headlines. I think it's fifty five thousand people from BT are being made redundant over X amount of years and things like that. But AI and technology won't you know replace jobs as such. There will still be jobs. The jobs will be different, but they won't require people to work full time, right? So this should be an opportunity for people to say actually as a society we 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 choose not to work 40 hours 45 hours 50 hours whatever it is that that people are doing on average and saying well could we move towards a society where everybody works part-time and these jobs are paid well we've got a ubi system and you know we we attempt to start to liberate ourselves from full-time work because that should you know that this sort of like drummed into you must have worked hard to achieve everything you know it's very neoliberal it's very of the late kind of 70s and early 80s and now it's like well should we if we're gonna you know herald capitalism has been successful in developing all this technology and ai so we shouldn't have to work so much or we shouldn't have to do all these different things. And I think the term the left, which is not my favourite, but I'm just going to use it now, is that people on the left need to start creating this new goal of what life for the working class could be, where there's much more liberation, there's much more time for, you know, family and, and interests and education and whatever it is that people want to do caring for people all these different things that where there's there's you, you we've got this new goal to move towards rather than working a, you know a national minimum wage job for 40 hours a week and still not be able to afford your gas bill like it's just to me just doesn't you know that's the, the this is where this all kind of fits together about creating this new this new goal of what we we should try and achieve and it's one of the things about capitalism is it's so reactive it's not good at planning ahead and that's why i think ubi will happen but i don't think in an ideal world you would see it coming uh with the fact that so many jobs in entire industries are not going to be supporting the amount of jobs that they currently do in an ideal world you would project that work it out say okay this is we might need ubi in order to the fact that there isn't many jobs to go around but we won't capitalism what will happen is they will implement UBI only when we're in a situation where they're facing this massive crisis of mass unemployment, unemployment that's going to cross class barriers. People always think about automation, doing people that work on assembly lines. AI is going to do people lawyers out of jobs, uh, journalists out of jobs. And when that starts happening, that's when society generally, when the middle and upper classes start feeling the crisis, it will start to... People start acting like it's a crisis and the government will start acting like it's a crisis. And then we will probably get some kind of UBI, but literally only to stave off like a massive, you know, societal unrest, which is another reason I don't like capitalism because it doesn't, it is, it's just no, a very good, good way of running a society because it doesn't, it doesn't think ahead. It just reacts like constantly. Okay. And now a word from our sponsor. Our sponsor this week is Sense of Nature Pet Service, based in Central Scotland. Sense of Nature gives you a hands-on, personalised experience with a variety of exciting creatures. From snakes and skunks to tarantulas and turtles, Sense of Nature has something for everyone. They offer sensory sessions, one-to-one and group sessions, educational encounters for children of all ages, and they are available for private events upon inquiry. Animal welfare is at the forefront of everything they do and if appropriate, a risk assessment can be carried out at no additional cost prior to your booking. To get 5% off your next booking with Sense of Nature, 
quote, Holyrood Ungagged 5 at time of booking. To contact Sense of Nature, you can do so by email on sense.of.natureinquiries at outlook.com. You can also find them on most social media platforms by searching for Sense of Nature. Rishi Sunak is facing a barrage of criticism this week. In a run-up to the official COVID-19 inquiry, a leading scientist attacked his spectacularly stupid eat-out-to-help-out scheme, which is believed to have caused a sudden rise in cases of the virus. The president of the British Medical Association also criticised the dysfunctional way in which the government, including the Treasury under Sunak, overlooked scientific advice throughout the pandemic. But it wasn't just the BMA criticising the PM. He was also under fire from his local PTA. Um, a local school in Eastern Sitchinson needed to fundraise to buy new computers, uh, while Sunak and his wife donated $3 million for a computing lab in California where his wife studied. Deborah, Rishi Sunak. The big man. Uh, he's, uh, he's, why is he Prime Minister when he's so fucking rich? Like, why would you take on that job? Unless it was to make more money. Donating £3 million to his wife's college. I mean, how, I don't even, what is, it's not even nepotism. What, what is that called? It's, it's rich people, that's what it is. Who's got £3 million lying about you going to get you a private school? It just, it, it's a private college, wasn't it? Yes, it costs $86,000 a year for they must be skint. Meanwhile, the school in his own constituency is doing a tombola for technology. That's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, the, just... the, the computers they were using were 15 years old, so get some more Needed in. some new ones. Ugh, it's just, I actually don't have any words. It's just outrageous. I don't, why, 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 how can, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. As Brian, please say something smart. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, Rishi Sunak. Yeah, these these two stories are are really standouts. But did anyone see the 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 uh, pictures of him on Twitter yesterday with these boots on? Has anyone seen this? He's basically like doing a press conference where he's like wearing what look like Timbies, right? Which is just really funny. So everybody's now mocking him for wearing these boots. And then the, what was trending this morning was stop the boots, which I thought was really really funny but anyway turn into these really important issues so yeah the, i think you've kind of caught the the main thing about when it comes to the the issue to do with donating money to a private school versus you know a tombola for for technology um i want to turn to the eat out to help out one because this is one that i'm really interested in and just kind of going back to what you were saying david about how capitalism can't plan they, this is this is a prime prime example so it's like uh, you know, we went into the first lockdown far too late. Things started to reopen too early, um, and then hospitality had been completely decimated right, over you know five six months or however long it had been. So the Conservatives come up with this policy of basically giving loads of money to private business and giving people discounted food, right? Um, which obviously. At the time, everyone's going, no, no, this is not an issue. This is not an issue, but we need to do this to, to you know, help our local pubs. And there was that sort of narrative painted about, you know, the, the you know, the great, um, you know, the great British pub and the great British restaurant and things like that. But then all the staff are on zero contracts and get paid national minimum wage. But anyway, um, you've got 
this particular policy in itself, which is now fallen under the remit of the 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 COVID nineteen, um, you know, committee, which has gone on the investigation into uh, COVID nineteen, which is really positive. The BMA and everything were really critical of this policy when it was suggested before, but you know, it just felt like we were in a bit of an alternate universe at that time, where people are like, yeah, 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 we need to we need to save the hospitality sector, so let's do this. Um, by you know giving discounts to to people to go out and congregate and eat food together, right? You know, and this is just, and and this is this is one that Rishi Sunak can't wriggle out of because this was his face was all over this, and it was him who announced it. It was his department; they funded it. He is entirely responsible for this, and um, so it'll be interesting to see where this continues and what people's views are looking back because at the time it was very much like oh this is the, the Tories looking after great British business and now people are like actually this was a horrendous idea when most people at that time were just like what is going on like why are we doing this you know it makes absolutely no sense it was also justified through because people were getting stuff because of furlough so because people were getting stuff business needs to get stuff so you know this is how you know the kind of furlough scheme all came about um, but you know f- the eat out to help out scheme had obviously the, the the kind of more obvious issues of potentially contributing to more cases. I'm I'm saying potential because it's not been confirmed, but you know, um, how that would have contributed. Was there not a spike immediately after the eat out to help out? There was, uh, yeah. um, but. The, Coincidentally, the yes, of course, there's loads of arguments against this. So it'll be interesting to see what this inquiry concludes um, from that. So I'll say alleged at the moment, um, the alleged increases to case. But also, um, as part of my research, I've collected data from this time, right, of what people's experiences were who worked in restaurants and pubs during this time. The amount of food waste during that time was horrendous so people are getting you know like massively discounted food and they're just ordering so much food and there was so much waste you had uh staff being abused because they didn't accept the the the, because they had to sign up to the scheme and it was quite bureaucratic so some places never signed up for it so that just led to more abuse to to places who, who didn't do the policy and then the fact that there just wasn't enough staff to maintain the, the business has been busy on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday when normally they're really quiet. So the 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 uh, Tory government created all these problems for businesses. And you've got hospitality people who have just come back from, from being on furlough for what, four months, five months um, on, on crap pay with these brand new uh, interventions in place, masks, you know, really strict cleaning policies and social distancing, all that on top of it. And it was a really stressful environment for them. And then you just chuck this on it as well. It's just, I think there was just, you know, clearly the focus on the needs of the business, but that's just another aspect to the year to help with that way to kind of, because I've not really seen it covered in, in many places. And it's really, really important to talk about the impacts on the frontline service workers during that time was absolutely horrendous. And then you've got Rishi Sunak doing a little photo photo op at what, what I think it was um kind of remember what restaurant it was carrying these little plates and being like hey you know we're being really good for business and and whatever don't cosplay people's frontline services jobs when yeah. you're a multi-millionaire and you're the prime minister it's, it's really demeaning it's just horrendous it also launched his reputation of being a sort of uh, economic quiz kid did it not? Do you not remember that? Some of the headlines. Uh, Rishi Sunak. Super, super Rishi, was it? Super Rishi, yeah. He saved the economy with this, this plan. Um, 
It definitely boosted his profile, which yeah. would have helped when he was later trying to get the leadership. That and furlough, I think, because it's all kind of been tagged as him, which are always seen as positive things. Obviously, the furlough scheme, you know, we can critique it now, but it was essential to have something like that at the time. And he was all over that. And I think that was definitely his kind of step towards leadership. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I remember the Eat Out to Help Out scheme just seemed stupid at the time. Like, I, not, I, I, could, I never understood it. It's, you know, like, again, they were pushing it open up, like, way too soon. As soon as they properly shut down, they were already pushing it open up again. Uh, it probably meant probably why we ended up having multiple lockdowns rather than we could have maybe get away with one if they had done it properly. But even when they did open up, surely you would think, right, okay, businesses can open up, but let's be careful, let's not encourage people to go out too much. Like, you know, let's open up a wee bit. You know, you could have done something a lot more sensible, like, okay, business can now open up, but we're reducing everybody's capacity for 50%, and we will compensate, you know, businesses for the la- the, the loss of custom for that. Rather than, like, okay, we're open up again, let's make sure you're super busy so you can make your money back. And, you know, it was costing us money, the government money anyway, so why not do it in a way that would, that wasn't going to increase... Um, make places busier, Deborah. And and don't forget that that was the whole convoluted concept of bubbles and, you know, uh, keeping your social distance and, you know, like it was, there was ridiculous sort of what they considered to be, oh, it's okay, you can go out, eight of you can sit at one table as long as, you know, two of you are from the same uh, household and maybe you've got an extended, but like it was, there was no I, I agree with you it was ridiculous I, I preferred your idea of compensation but again that was in hindsight because it still feels a bit like a dream that we all lived through a pandemic and lockdown wild yeah and then you've got all these bubbles and and rules and numbers of people and can do this and can do that but then you're not allowed to go around to somebody's house to have a cup of tea so I think what this started to do was also an erosion of the public health message as well where people were like, you know, oh, we'll just meet in the pub. And, you know, but, you know, we can be from two different households with this person. Kids are not included, blah, blah, blah. And I think it became really, really confusing, especially if there was differences between Scotland, which tended to have a bit more of a cautious approach versus the, uh, other parts of the UK. And then obviously we ended up in the tier system with Glasgow being different from that. And it became really, really quite difficult to, to do it. And then you've just got... I go to the pub and you know order your extra onion rings and your extra chicken wings and whatever it is and it just completely undermined the the public health message as well as the actual implications that it would have had. Yeah, I'm I'm just thinking back like some how ludicrous it was getting. It was like you know you can go to the pub but you can't stand at the bar, but you can sit down but you can't stand up even if you're away from the bar you need to be in a seat. Um. It's okay to watch the football, but if you start, if you cheer too loud, you need to leave or you can be arrested. And it's like, and and, and part of me thinks it was deliberate. It was like, let's just make it so convoluted and stupid that people just end up going, oh, to hell with this. I'm not, I'm not even going to try and learn the rules and, yeah, and the, just forget the, the whole thing. No music as well, so people didn't talk too loud. Do you yeah. remember that one? <laughs> yeah, and there's, you know, and, and obviously the restriction of alcohol sales and things like that and timings, and that was done. There's, there is a public, there is a paper 
that was done by Sullen University that was for the Scottish government. And that's why they started clamping down on pub times and things like that, because there was people sent into pubs who'd done research, watching what was happening. And that's how these rules were implemented, because they were they were breaching. The, these rules were being breached and they were concerned that the, the, that would have a huge impact on, on cases. What about the schools, Brian, anything they say about the... I think this is just really naked stuff, really, isn't it? It's like, you know, here's, I'm rich. I'm going to give this money to somewhere that we know that's in the loop, that, you know, is, is in the in the club. So we'll just give them loads of money as a donation or contribute towards something. And then you've got, you know, kids in Rishi Sunak's constituency, like you're saying, is running a tumble of the kind of computers that's not, you know, 15 years old. It's just, it's, it's just, it just shows where we are in terms of education. I think, uh, you know, within the English context in, in this particular one. And you've got the leader of the, the Tory party just funneling money into to, to private um, schools. You know, it would just be even better if we just didn't have private schools in the first place, then we wouldn't have issues like this. Um, you know, if we had public schools where everybody had a, a, an interest in making sure that they were, uh, I know it's, it's confusing, sorry, in Scotland, public schools, but you know what I mean? State-owned schools, um, no private schools, um, so that everybody took, everyone took care of the education system rather than rich people funneling money into their old schools or somebody they know is old school and things like that. It's just, it would just prevent that from happening, I think, also. I was uh, reading about the actual college in California, uh, and it's a liberal arts school, which is surprising for a billionaire woman uh, to go to. But apparently a famous um, students included Robin Williams. So I just I found that interesting. And uh, the school there has £600 chairs. Did you see that? And see nice. that? How can a school cost a, a chair cost that kind of money? It's special ergonomical wheelchairs. I like them. I'd have one. <laughs> better ask send an email to Rishi Sunak, man. I know, but it wasn't an insubstantial amount either. It wasn't like he was just giving them a wee bung. Three million pound. That is a lot of uh, charitable write off in it. It is a bit weird about. Right wing, they, they hate the idea of handouts, but they love, like, you know, like a kind of charity, you know, it's like, which is like the def- definition of handouts, you know. It's... They, the right wing hate handouts when they don't get to decide who gets it. So they like yeah. to have the power of who they funnel that money to. That's the, the moral of the story. Oh, they love free money, but just they can decide where it goes. Let's move on to our final topic. Rishi Sunak is facing yet another Tory rebellion over tax. This time from wealthy MPs demanding inheritance taxes scrapped altogether. Shamed MP Nadim Zahawi, who was sacked as Conservative Party chair over his own tax dealings, is leading a charge of more than 50 rebels calling for the move. He said he is haunted at the prospect of paying tax in his fortune when he dies. Members of the Conservative Growth Group, allies of Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Liz Truss, are set to publish a paper trying to convince the Treasury to can scrap the tax. Brian? Yeah, this is, um, if this was any other workplace, this would be a conflict of interest because Nadim Zahawi has like a multi-million um, pro- property portfolio. So basically he's lobbying publicly for himself. Um, so we'll just say that really, really clearly. 
Um, I think there is some different rules in different parts of the UK, but I know from the, for the English context with this one, is that you can have up to like, is it 500 million? No, that's completely lie, sorry. There's 500,000, if you own a property that's more than 500,000, that then falls into the um, inheritance tax aspects. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, in Scotland, there's not, it's, you know, when you look at the properties in southeast England, you can see how that would start to fall into this policy a lot more. Um, and also, I can't remember the exact amount of wealth that you start to be taxed at, but it works out basically that you're paying a tax rate, which is a lot less than income tax. If you were to, you know, if you were to die and you were passing this on, um, you would be paying a lot less than what you would do in income tax, right? So basically... This is just what they're trying to do is just to make it easier for them to preserve their, um, as what they would say, their hard-earned money that they've made. And this is going back to individualism. They, they've obviously worked hard. They've accumulated everything. They shouldn't have to hand over to, to, to the tax because they've worked hard and they want to pass that on to their, their family, um, which ultimately will give them a head start in life. And, you know, therefore they'll be able to accumulate more capital um, and and so capitalism continues. Um, it's really bold to people like Nazim Sahawi and Liz Trust to stick their head above the parapet at the moment. You think they would at least give it a year before they start making big bold claims. And it just also shows you that this group, this is the Britannia Unchained headbangers of like low tax and all that kind of jazz. And um, you would think that they wouldn't start talking about this during such a prevalent cost of greed crisis cost of living crisis that we're living in um so you know centrists love talking about the optics but this in itself is like how stupid can you be because this is not going to go down well with a lot of people because a lot of people will never even touch on potentially having to to pay anything in inheritance tax to pass things on to the family but the fact that this is a priority for people like Nadine Sahawi then perhaps Nadim Sahawi just shouldn't be in Parliament or anywhere near power, to be honest, because it's just a clear conflict of interest. And uh, I think that even if the UK government were to pursue anything like this, I genuinely think there would be an uproar. I, I, genu I genuinely think there would be amongst certain classes. But, um, yeah, we just... I mean, this just shows really, really bad politics, but it also shows desperation because the general election's coming up soon. And when the way things are looking... It will not be the Conservatives in power. Deborah? I, um, I like what he said, that he doesn't want to be paying tax twice. He'll be dead. It's not him. But <laughs> uh, and he didn't pay inheritance tax anyway for his father's wealth, did he? Is that not what he's getting investigated about? No? Uh, so it's like, uh, as you said, it's uh, very much uh, vested interest. I've got a quote here. He said, he said, inheritance tax is a spectre haunting Britain. It must be abolished. I think that is the Tories, to be honest. <laughs> They're a spectre haunting Britain. <laughs> I missed that laugh, right? That cackle. I, it's absolutely ridiculous to be suggesting this. It isn't a tax on the people who have the wealth and their hard work. It's a tax on whoever's going to inherit it and let's be honest at where did they work hard to get the money like or did they themselves inherit it like that's hard, the whole hard, blood hard work was done let's know quibble about who did the hard work there was definitely <laughs> hard work involved uh, maybe, it, 500, maybe 500 years ago that hard work uh, 
getting that big hoose and all the serfs and then the poor, 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 poor manor uh, owners there. Have you seen the costs they've got right now maintaining their big houses? And you want to pay inheritance tax on that £2.5 million estate? <laughs> like, it's just, uh, why is this even a thing that they're gone for this sort of if they if they want to stimulate the economy then cut the tax that the lowest people at the lowest earners pay cut that tax why why are we cutting the tax that people can afford it's ridiculous it's, it's, it's ideological it's, choice i mean i mean to actually have the brass neck to say he's haunted haunted <laughs> the prospect that his haunted. son might only get some of the millions and millions of pounds and wouldn't and only got maybe no get all of it. Get a grip, you absolute drama queen, haunted for haunted God's by sake. it. I He's mean, got ten properties, ten or probably ten portfolios of properties. He wants to pass them on in full to his children. He worked hard being a landlord. Fuck him. The absolute cheek of these folk, like who, like, given it, there was a Tory MP a couple of weeks ago was telling people they couldn't afford to eat a ham, a, a cheese sandwich, they would just have to go without. Well, if you can't afford to pay inheritance tax, tough. You know, like, how is it it's only, like, the very basic necessities for the very poorest, and they just have to, like, you know, get on with it, and, you know, whereas these absolute ghouls can go on and shamefacedly cry about, you know, having to pay tax on their millions of pounds or or crying about having how much it costs them to heat their you know 800 bedroom home you know it's i mean how do they say it by a straight face they live in such a bubble that they genuinely think this is real worries and real concerns yeah I mean, that seems that how we also was getting money from oil and gas companies as well he was just being paid for, you know, the odd day's work here and there and things like that too. So uh, Nadim Sahawi is, is interesting because he stood to be Prime Minister, which is quite fascinating um, concerning, worrying. And he was the, the um, Chancellor for a while, wasn't he, when all this, this all sort of came yes. out? So he was in charge when, when of he, the public when he was When he was in dispute with the, with the tax authorities, he that was the Chancellor. Yep. Yeah. Let's not also uh, forget that these exceptionally wealthy people have all got the most expert tax advice. Uh, lawyers who can find loopholes, uh, you know, sell their property to their children for a nominal fee and then they can avoid the loop. Like, there are so many things, <laughs> there are so many other things that really the government should be worrying about. Know this. And also, how can anybody, you know, the, was it the Conservative Growth Group, Anybody that's associated with Liz Truss seriously expect people to take them, you know, serious when it comes to tax and uh, financial issues. You know, a, a woman who nearly bankrupted the country when she was only in, in the Downing Street for, what, 30 days or 40 days? 40 days, destroyed, right. just Managed to almost destroy the economy in that time, yet they're still convinced that their ideas for the, the uh, slashing tax, uh, sorry, Slashing tax and slashing spending is the way forward. You know, absolutely no self-reflection um, going on there at all. And if I was in a conservative group that called itself, like the growth, whatever you want to call it, and they'd been basically flatline growth since 2008, and they had been in power 
for 13 years of it, it's probably not a very good group because there's no growth. The stagnant economic commission doesn't have the same big debt, though. (laughs) If if I was in a conservative group, I would throw myself in front of a train. Yeah. (laughs) Drastic, just don't join the group. (laughs) I was just using it as like a sort of abstract example, David. I know, taking it so far. Um, I just want to add another wee point, if I've got time. I know this has been quite a long I know it's me, just keep looking at my watch. These exceptionally wealthy people, as I I sort of just mentioned a wee bit, that they are able to avoid paying a lot of tax, right? They have abilities to cost cut, to buy things through businesses, to maybe employ their children, get tax breaks. Like there's so many things that are way above my expertise in tax, but I know they're there and I know that they're used by these people. Meanwhile, on the other end of the scale, people who are poor pay more for shit. They pay more because they don't have maybe big fridges so they can't bulk buy. They've got small houses. They're paying extortionate rents. That There's so so many things to make you exceptionally angry at the Tories but this one this one this one's taking the biscuit a wee bit and I I I don't understand why these people care about what happens when they die that much to be honest when I'm dead I'll be glad to just not have any worries about money and finances is that too gloomy on that positive note uh, I think we'll end it there you can find all our podcasts at leftungag.org as well as written articles and you can sign up for a free newsletter. Um, you can also listen to our sister podcast, Talking Sense with Kat and Erin. And if you've got anything you'd like us to talk about on Hollywood Ungagged, you can tweet us at underscore ungagged, hashtag Hollywood Ungagged, or email us at ungaggedleft at gmail.com and put Hollywood Ungagged in the subject line. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us five stars in whatever platform you use. Uh, Until then, have fun, be good, and be lucky. Bye. Bye. Bye.